So this morning I wanted to look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 8. Packing me up there, Hamish. Is this all right? That's good. Okay. Remember Christ rose from the dead. And why pick this passage for you this morning? Well, I've got to confess, I, I wrote this message last year. Of, it's not the first time I've preached it. I actually wrote it as a bit of a reaction because I was dealing with uh, some false teaching coming in to some of the people that I had some responsibility of overseeing or shepherding. Uh, it's really another gospel saying that if we weren't faithful as Christians that we could lose our salvation. And I won't go into that now. I actually sort of had another glancing blow with it uh, just recently uh, in the last couple of weeks as well with another church struggling with the same teaching coming in. But um, in the midst of that sort of ickiness and uh, false teaching, you know, sometimes you feel like, well, which way's up? You know, what do we clearly know? And and so, and I was due to preach somewhere else. And I said, you know, I'm just going to go right back to that, which is of first importance. And sometimes as you go into 2018, this year things might get crazy. Uh, and sometimes you might ask that same question, you know, which way's up? Uh, if this one's saying that and this one's saying that, and yeah, what do we really know clearly and and absolutely no dispute over? And in the process of it this morning, also want to bring some application to evangelism because uh, I guess since I wrote this, I've been meditating on it over and over again. And now when I'm sharing my faith, I find myself using this structure quite a lot and I've been delighted to see the response that I get from it. So yeah, I don't want you to lose sight of what is most important. And if we go to the book of Corinthians there and if you want to open your book uh, Bible in 1 Corinthians 1 and just quickly flick through there, you'll see some, uh, some headings in your Bible. All the issues that the Apostle Paul is dealing with. There's divisions in the church, believers following men instead of Christ. You've got sexual immorality, eating food offered to idols, the whole thing on spiritual gifts, prophecy and tongues. This Corinthian church has got lots and lots of problems. And Paul has got one more question to deal with regarding confusion over the resurrection bodies. And to my surprise, that's still, there's still confusion about that uh, throughout the church today. Yeah, what happens to we? Uh, I even heard just yeah, a week or so someone saying, you know, that, that this body's going to die and we'll just become a spirit. Well, no. Uh, read 1 Corinthians 15. <laughs> yeah, we've got a better body coming. Uh, Scott's happy about that. Yeah. <laughs> So there's one more question to deal with, but before Paul deals with that question, he wants to bring us all back to the gospel. He wants us to bring us back to Christ and specifically back to the resurrection. So I'd like to look at four things this morning. This one, thanks, uh, Hamish. 
four things that we need to remember about the resurrection. And then we'll look at some implications of that. The first thing is that it is of first importance. So if you want to know your gospel priorities, the the resurrection or the, the gospel, the simple gospel is of first importance. I think of a pastor's office that I walked into uh, a while ago and there's this yellow sticky note on his wall right behind his computer saying, keep the main thing the main thing, which is kind of a saying at the moment. But it's very easy for all of us in whatever we're doing to, to get distracted, take, pulled off the main main thing. So if, um, can you just go to the next one, Hamish? Let's just read that passage, and I think I've got it in the ESV there. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preach to you which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, with BTCP, one of the things we teach in hermeneutics is look at the structure. And just in these couple of passages, look at the structure of this magnifying glass effect or telescope effect. He starts speaking about the gospel. I remind you of the gospel. But then he intensifies that focus and he talks, starts talking about Christ. And that Christ died for our sins, he was buried and he was raised. But then he further intensifies that or brings more and more focus and he brings it down to the resurrection. And then he develops that resurrection. He really bores into that resurrection uh, because that's the real crux. It's the, the gospel of his first importance and within that gospel, the resurrection is is primary. And in verse 4 there it says uh, that he was raised. And uh, that's interesting because it's, uh, to get a little bit technical, it's in the passive grammatical voice. He was raised. It doesn't Normally we'd say, if we if we're taught to write things today, we'd say, uh, um, Bob raised the house or something, but it says was raised. So I've got a question for you this morning. Who did the raising? Who raised Christ? God the Father. Okay, well done, Paul. Uh, You are correct. Acts 2 verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And we see similar passages in Acts 3.15 and Colossians 2.12. But now let's look at John 2.19. And Jesus is talking about he's going to destroy this temple. And he says, in three days, I will raise it up. So we know that he's, by destroying the temple, he's talking about his body. And Jesus is saying, I will raise it up. So is Paul wrong? Have we got a conflict in scripture here? No, we haven't, because Jesus is God. So God the Father raised Jesus. God the Son raised himself. And no doubt, if we continued studying, we'd find out the Holy Spirit's working there as well. 
and very hard. The more we study, the more the harder it is to separate out the three uh, the three people of the Trinity. So, yes, it's important to realize that uh, yes, Jesus is God, and right there we have it uh, in that passage. And John twenty verse nine tells us that. Uh, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So these disciples, as they're, they're trying to work everything out, they didn't understand that their Messiah, this lamb, must not only be sacrificed, but that lamb that Scott so beautifully sang about, he must rise from the dead. If he did not rise, then there are major, major problems which we'll go through as, as we study this passage. So that's why it's kind of of first importance. Uh, it's God doing the raising and he must rise from the dead. Second thing we must remember is in verse 3 and 4, the same ones that we've already read, is that it was predicted. This was no surprise. It shouldn't have been a surprise. Two times in, in those passages, three and four, we say we see it says in accordance with the scriptures. So as Paul, he's speaking to Gentiles here mostly in Corinth, but he's reminding them, no, this was no surprise, but from thousands of years prior, this was predicted that the the Christ he must die in accordance with the scripture, that he would be buried, and that he would be raised in accordance with the scriptures. And in all four Gospels, we have predictions by Christ of his own resurrection. And this is where it comes, comes to bear on our, on our evangelism. And Paul used this as well. I've been reading another book, uh, and it was also talking about Paul in Acts, where he referred to Gentiles about the resurrection and how it was predicted. So I was... Uh, Rosemary and I had a bit of time off over Christmas and New Year, and it might have been sort of New Year's Day or very early this year. Got talking down by Lake Wai- um, the River, the Waikato River, with a man, a German man called Carl. Uh, had a, some sort of an African wife, and then there was a Kiwi man there too that had obviously been through Christianity, but had somehow been enlightened and come through the other side. So he was quite a sceptic and a bit of a problem. But Carl had a, a Roman, uh, well, some contact with Roman Catholicism. He knew a bit about his Bible. He could relate to some of the stories and things that I said, but he was obviously not a believer. And one of the things I did, well, we talked, I did a lot of listening and the, the conversation was going all over the place as this other Kiwi guy was trying to derail it and so on. But... We talked a little bit about the Bible, and the Kiwi guy says, "Oh, you can't, you, you can't really trust the Bible. There's so many different versions." And I sort of quickly dealt with that one, and sort of said, "Well, you've got to be careful to discern between translations and the original manuscripts." And talked briefly about that, and that kind of sat him back on his heels a bit. Praise the Lord! Uh, but then we got talking about Jesus, and and I'm always curious. One of my questions is, "Well, who do you think Jesus is?" And 
quasi-historical figure. And Carl, uh, well, both of these guys were quite intellectual. Carl says, oh, yes, of course. So, well, who was he then? And going on to the, the sort of, um, was he a lunatic or, um, or, just, uh, or, a, or a liar or was he Lord type thing? Sort of started boring in onto that and, and they weren't too sure. And, and Carl's view was that Jesus was kind of a, a, a radical hippie kind of guy who came along uh, at this time while the, the Jews were all sort of wrapped up in their law and their religion and that, and Jesus was just preaching love and a different, different thing. So and that's better than, than what the Kiwi guy was, was, was at anyway. I can work with that hippie guy approach. So um, we, we keep digging on a little bit, and I say, well, there's, there's trouble with this, this guy Jesus because he said some strange things. He, he said he was God, and I asked them, well, you know, what would you think of me if I said I was God? And they're kind of looking at me thinking, you're not saying you're God, are you? <laughs> so already they're going, you're a nutter if you're going to say that. So I'm saying, no, no, no. You'd be a nutter if you said you were God, right? Yeah, so he's saying strange things like he's God. And But he said to back, there's something else strange he said. He said in three days, um, this temple, speaking about his body, would be destroyed and that he would raise it up in three days. Now I said, now that is really strange. This guy's saying he's God and then he's predicting that he's going to die and raise three days later. So how can we tell if this guy's God or not? It really comes right down to the fact that he rise from the dead. And at that point, Carl said, yeah, 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 but we can never know that. And then the Kiwi guy jumps in and takes us away for another 15 minutes while I'm sitting carefully waiting, waiting, waiting. Anyway, back to the back to my notes here. I'll leave you partway through the story with, with Carl and the Kiwi guy. So all four gospel Gospels, we have predictions of Christ of his own resurrection. This, this man is walking around saying he's going to rise again. But the Apostle Paul is probably referring to Old Testament scripture where, where he's talking about these predictions. And if you've got a good study Bible, there'll be a string of Old Testament references talking about the resurrection. But for the sake of time, let's just go to Isaiah 53, 5-6. The, the chapter of the Bible that the, the Jews avoid. Isaiah 53, 5-6. It says, now I want you to look at the tense here. Uh, past tense, he's saying, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have sinned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we're familiar with that. We might bring that out at Christmas. And those following passages, it talks about him being cut off, uh, stricken. And we identify all of that with the crucifixion. It's, it's very clear. So down to chapter uh, to verse 9, it's talking about Christ's death. And past tense, it's all past tense to that point. 
But from verse 10, we get the switch. And it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. So through all this death, now whoever this person that the Isaiah is talking about, now this person is prospering and he's, his, his days are prolonged and he's seeing his offspring. Well, how does that work? You know, uh, yeah, one of these conflicts again. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. And then if you jump down to the end of verse 12, it says, Yet he bore the sin of many past tense and makes intercession for the transgressors. Present tense. He goes on, and Romans 8.34 talks about how Jesus Christ is interceding for us right now as believers. He's praying for us. How can a dead Jesus, how can a dead lamb or this person that was stricken, how can a dead person be doing those things that it talks about in verses 10, 11, and 12? So, yes, resurrection spoken of, Paul's referring back maybe to Isaiah, we don't know. But yeah, again, your study Bible, you can look up other Old Testament references. That's one of my favorites because also it ties in uh, nicely in with Romans. So prophecy talked about uh, Christ's resurrection. Jesus Christ predicted it himself. And then it's not just the prophecy of the Old Testament, it's also typology. Uh, for example, Melchizedek, king of Salem, was identified in Hebrews 7 as a type of Christ. Uh, Hebrews 7, 3 says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So this mysterious figure of Melchizedek, uh, at least mythically they considered him having no genealogy or or beginning or end. And yeah, we know from Hebrews that's a type of Jesus Christ. Uh, There's the type of Jonah. In 2 chapter 10, uh, being three days and nights in the whale, and that linked clearly in the New Testament in Matthew 12, verse 40, the sign of Jonah. Uh, so he's, Jesus is saying, yes, according to that typology in Jonah, he must rise. And then there's Isaac in Genesis 22:13, uh, as Abraham figuratively kills him. And uh, Isaac's mind, according to Hebrews 11:19, sorry, in, in Abraham's mind, Isaac was dead meat. Yet God raised him again, uh, brought him back to life. So all through scripture we've got this this weaving of this pattern where the Messiah, the sacrifice, would not only die, that's clear enough, simple enough from the Passover and things, but this, this sacrifice would have to rise again to fulfill all of that Old Testament scripture. And maybe that's why again Paul's saying this is of first importance. So, moving on through, we've uh, seen that it's of first importance, it was predicted. Third thing we need to remember is that it really happened. So coming back to Carl, he says, how can we we know? 
No, we can't know. We can never know whether he rose from the dead. So I sat and I, I listened and I was preparing my answer and I said, Carl, coming back to your comment that we can never know, if you wanted to establish a historical fact, uh, however long it is from five years ago or 2,000 years ago, what evidence would you need to convince yourself that that historical fact happened? And uh, praise the Lord for God's wisdom, that really, that, that stopped him in his tracks. And, and he really thought about it. What evidence would he need? And then, because I'd been, I'd studied this 1 Corinthians 15, then away we go. Uh, it did really happen. How do I know that? How do I, as a Christian, base my whole life on that and know that it really happened? Well, we've got direct evidence. And I said, Carl, you'd want to, you'd want to have some eyewitnesses, wouldn't you? Some people that actually saw it happen. He says, yes, that, that would be a good place to start. Acts 1.3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, many proofs, appearing to them, during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And what were those, those proofs? Well, the apostles, the disciples, they saw Jesus Christ and they recognized him. So again, these resurrection bodies are recognizable. They heard him, they heard his voice and recognized his voice. This is Jesus. Uh, they'd spent three and a half years with him and his sheep hear his voice. So... Yeah, it wouldn't, Rosemary wouldn't go very, very long with somebody trying to imitate my voice before she knew it wasn't me. So they heard his voice, uh, they touched him, uh, and they ate with him. So we know he's alive, he's eating stuff. And none of the gospels stop at Christ's death. All four of the gospels go on to the resurrection. The resurrection is a major theme of the book of Acts and also throughout the epistles. So we've got that direct evidence threaded right through scripture saying, yes, this Jesus rose from the dead. But not just direct evidence, we've got indirect evidence. We've got some strange things like disciples hiding in upper rooms for fear of their lives, despondent and downcast, then uh, 40 or 50 days later, preaching to 3,000 people and having them saved, fearlessly. How can that transformation happen? What was it that changed those, those guys? We've got the theme of apostolic preaching. We've got the reaction of those who rejected Christ, such as Pilate, where he tries to cover up uh, this, this resurrection. They will say, well, no, there's, we need to make it look like there's been a a body stolen, and don't worry, guards, you won't be held accountable for this. We're not going to take your heads off, which is a normal uh, punishment for, for gross neglect of duty. No, we'll just cover this over. And another e indirect evidence is we've got the growth of Christianity over the last 2,000 years. And who knows the real number of Christians, but most would say it's around 2 billion. Uh, still the biggest, uh, not religion, but uh, faith, biggest faith in the world, 
uh, although not the fastest growing just at the moment. So if I can quote a man called Norman Geisler from his uh, manual on apologetics, he says, evidence for the resurrection of Christ is compelling. There are more documents, more eyewitnesses, more corroborative evidence than for any other historical event of ancient history. The second supplementary evidence is convincing when combined with the direct evidence. It presents a towering case for the physical resurrection of Christ. In legal terminology, it is beyond all reasonable doubt. Sorry, I should have read those scriptures. Let me just go back. Okay. And again, I took... uh, took Carl to these scriptures, which I could remember. I couldn't remember all of these scriptures when I was talking to him. But that he appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So, I explained we've got over 500 eyewitnesses. In fact, some of them aren't even mentioned. Who were the two eyewitnesses uh, that Scott read to us just in Mark this morning? Who were they? Mary, can you be more specific? That's tough, isn't it? Because I can't remember half the time, but I checked. It's Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James. Paul doesn't mention them, and we talked about this with Carl. There's two women, but they weren't mentioned. Why weren't they mentioned? Why, well, we don't really know why, but why might they not have been mentioned? Yes, Paul's putting a legal case here in Second Corinthians. So he, he puts aside the, the eyewitness accounts of the two women because they will not stand up in a court of law. Uh, sorry, ladies. <laughs> they do today. So Paul skips over that because he's, he's wanting to nail this legal case. If you want to go that way, we've got so much proof. We only need two male witnesses, and that would have been enough. But we've got more than two male witnesses. We've got uh, you know, uh, Peter and John and, and the 500 at one time, and then James, and he just goes right through. We've got so much evidence how much evidence reasonably do you need? And so I'm boring into Carl here now. How, you know, if you want to prove something and you're saying you can't prove it, how much evidence? Is that enough? I'm saying it is. So there's our evidence. So we've got the gospel, uh, the resurrection, it's of first importance. Two, it was predicted, it's no surprise. Three, it really did happen, and we've got plenty of evidence for a rational person who's not trying to block the truth to prove it. And then the fourth thing we need to remember, it it has huge implications. And so, again with Carl, I say, well, so this man Jesus, he said he was God. There's plenty of people who have said they're God. There's plenty of religions where people have said they are the one true way. But Jesus is the only one who said that he would die and that he would rise from the dead, and he's the only one that's still alive today. Every other one, Buddha's dead, Muhammad's dead, they're all dead, and they didn't predict that they would 
rise from the dead. So here we've got a massive difference. So what do you think? If this man Jesus said he was God, said he would rise from the dead, three die and rise from the dead three days later, and he did, can you believe that he really is God? And so that's one of the implica- implications. Romans 1.4 uh, is proving Jesus was and is God and says and was declared, the speaking of Jesus, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's some good words in there, according to power, the power of his spirit. It's not every day you get a resurrection. It takes a lot of power to do that. And that powerful resurrection proved he was the son of God. And you might sit there and uh, my Kiwi mate, the skeptic there who'd been through Christianity and found other way paths of enlightenment might have said, oh, that's just the son of God. But let's be clear, son of God clearly meant God to the Jews. You can go back in the Gospels where they said, we'll stone you because, not because you do these miracles, but because you claim to be the Son of God. So he was killed for being claiming to be God or the Son of God. Same thing in their mind. And in John 20, verse 28, Thomas, the skeptic, again, we talked about the skeptic with Carl, uh, you know, these weren't deluded disciples because Thomas, for two weeks, he's saying, no, no, no. Unless I can see Jesus' body, unless I can put my hands, uh, my fingers into his hands and my hand in his side, I will not believe. And that's a double negative. I will not by no means believe. So Thomas is kind of like our scientific minds, the way I've been trained. Got a Master's of Science, I understand that philosophy and the limitations of it. Uh, so Thomas is like that scientific mind that is saying, no, I need empirical evidence. I need to be able to use my five senses to measure this and say, yes, I can touch him, I can see him, I can hear him, uh, maybe not taste him, but I can use my senses to know this is no illusion. These disciples haven't seen some ghost or uh, ate too much pizza the night before or something like that, no. He's saying, I want really strong evidence. And so Thomas asks for that and Christ grants it. Next time he, he comes, Thomas is there in the upper room. Thomas sees him and he doesn't even have to put his finger in the side. Thomas answers him, Thomas being a Jew, understanding all this theology that we've just been talking about. Thomas's response is interesting. He says, my Lord and my God. Thomas knows if he is seeing Jesus resurrected, then he is both Lord and he is God. Thomas knows the implications and that I think one of the highest confessions that we have in scripture of who Jesus is. So that's the first implication. I've got another nine to go. Uh, probably speed up a little bit. But I probably had eight when I started this. So as you're going, if you think of another one, dot it down and make a note, and you can tell me at the end, tell all of us at the end, and I'll, I'll add this to the message, because there's a lot of implications. 
powerful implications. Second implication, it demonstrated God's power. We've just read about that in Romans 1.4, but Ephesians 19-20. to And that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So it's the resurrection is a demonstration of God's power by raising him from the dead. And uh, Christ demonstrated that power with raising Lazarus. We'll come back to that in a minute. The third implication, it assures all of the judgment. Now, this is not one that I would have said until about, until last year when I, I started putting this message together. Acts 17.31 uh, Paul's saying, because he has fixed a day on which he, being God, will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So how do we know that Jesus is going to judge the world? How do we know he's the judge? It's because God rose him from the dead. Now put yourself in the sandals of the people in Jesus' time. Christ is walking around telling people over and over again that the Father has given him authority to execute judgment on humanity. And the Jews were, were kicking against that and saying, no, this son of a carpenter is not going to be judging us. Uh, and so you can see those as I can give a string of references, John 5, 22, 27, Acts 10, 2 Corinthians. Jesus is saying, I'm going to judge the world. And they're saying, no, you're kidding, mate. It's a bit like me talking to Carl and saying, uh, what would you say if I said I was God? Well, they could say, what would you say if I said I was going to judge the world one day? You know, you'd laugh at me. So these Jews, everybody rejects Christ. They say, no, you're not going to judge us. You're not the son of God. Uh, in fact, we just want to crucify you, then he rises from the dead. How would you feel? I'd be thinking, uh-oh, I am in big, big trouble. I've crucified this guy who said he was going to die and rise again. He said he was going to judge the world, and now he's risen from the dead. Uh, I'm in big trouble. So that's the third implication of the resurrection. The fourth implication is that believing is an evidence of salvation. Romans 10 verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I'm not sure where Carl is now, but he's got a lot to think about. But if, if by now he's saying, yes, that guy I was talking to at the Waikato River, uh, he got me thinking, I checked it out, the evidence, now I believe that this Jesus was raised, raised from the dead. I'm not sure if that's complete salvation, but that would be an evidence of saying that he is saved. So there's another implication. The fifth implication, it verifies that Christ's sacrifice for our sins Verse 3 that we saw in 2 Corinthians was actually accepted. Uh, verse 4, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. 
So his sacrifice for our sins was accepted. So if if it was me or Pastor Scott that was crucified for the sins of the world, we would have died, barely would have paid for our, wouldn't have paid for our own sins. Uh, But how do we know that Christ paid for all our sins and that that sacrifice was enough because God raised him from the dead? Romans 8, 33 to 34. Paul's talking about, uh, it's kind of a different topic, uh, about our, our security in Christ. It says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, Satan's the one accusing us, saying, this guy's not good enough. How can he get to heaven? How can he have eternal life? It says, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? And then Paul says, Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So Paul's making again this legal argument in Romans saying, well, yet legally we can't pay the price for our own sin, but Christ died, and how do we know that payment was sufficient? Because God raised him from the dead again. You see, this man is sinless. Uh, Death cannot hold him. Therefore, uh, he will rise from the dead because there was no sin in him. And C.S. Lewis does a beautiful job in uh, Is It the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with Aslan of bringing that out uh, in a, uh, what do you call that? A, uh, a what? An, an, an allegory, allegory, yep. So, yeah, we know it's, we know the sacrifice was accepted, but also the opposite applies from 1 Corinthians 15 17. Uh, further on in, in our passage, it says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And you see how everything hinges on this resurrection. Why would we still be in our sins if Christ was not raised from the dead? Because it would have meant his sacrifice was not enough to pay for us, and so we're still, we're still condemned. But because he rose from the dead, he took my punishment, I'm no longer still in my sins, and... Uh, my faith is not futile. It's based on facts. Sixth implication. It was the instrument by which we could be born again to a living hope. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that is the way that this living hope, this being born again is brought about is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's probably another deep theological message that we could spend a a lot of time studying, but I'll move on. But yeah, if, if we claim we're born again, we're born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The seventh implication It empowers us to walk in the newness of life. So it's not only just about salvation, the the gospel of being saved from our sins and not going to hell but going to heaven. It's also the resurrection is implicated in empowering us to walk the Christian life, or in other words, the gospel of sanctification, gradually being cleaned up and walking a more and more Christ-like life. How do we get the power for that? Romans 6, verses 4 to 5. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism unto death. So 
these passages. Uh, you'll remember we, Pastor Scott, I think, was probably used them in baptism. We identify with his burial, with his burial by baptism into death, uh, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we identify with Christ as we are buried. We identify with Christ uh, just as he was raised from the dead, that we are raised, and it talks there to walk in the newness of life. So Pastor Scott might say something when he buries, uh, not when he buries somebody, when he baptizes somebody. <laughs> yeah, buried in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection to walk in the newness of life. So that's all coming out of Romans, these verses. So the power we get to walk in that newness of life is because of the resurrection. Same resurrection power is working in us. Same Holy Spirit as it was in Christ is in us. Eighth implication. Are you, are you blown away yet? Eighth implication, it meant that we could be seated with Christ in heavenly places. Ephesians 2 verses 4 to 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So part of even going back to that baptism picture, as we are raised up in the likeness of his resurrection, Christ then was seated at the right hand of the Father and we are in Christ and Christ is in the Father, but us being in Christ, we are then positionally seated at the right hand of the Father. Right now, positionally, we're at the right hand of the Father in Christ. And that's because of that resurrection. Getting a little bit technical, but it all comes together. You can uh, get my notes afterwards if you want to dig further. Ninth implication. Two more to go from me, and then we'll start on yours. It means that those who believe in him will never die. See the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, our, our main passage. Paul's talking about that whole concept. What happens to us when we die? The Corinthians were confused. Paul's saying, well, this is what happens. You get a new resurrection body, and that body goes on to live forever. There's no corruption in it. Uh, it's very much like Christ's resurrection body. In fact, he was the first fruit. John 11, 25 to 26 says, uh, this is the story around Jesus and Lazarus. Jesus said to her, Martha, says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asked Martha. I ask you, do you believe this? And uh, I also referred Carl to Lazarus. I said this, this Jesus as he's walking around claiming that he's God and claiming that he's going to rise from the dead. I said he did something even before that and that he raised a man who had been dead four days from the dead just to give us a foretaste, just to give people a bit of an idea 
Yes, this man Jesus does actually have power to raise himself from the dead because he's raised Lazarus from the dead first. And uh, I didn't probably wasn't sharp enough on my scripture, but I should have asked Carl, do you believe this? He would have uh, not quite sure now. I kind of like my happy Jesus before, but uh, <laughs> do you believe this? If you do, you'll never die. Tenth implication, my last one, almost to the end, it foreshadows the time when death itself will be destroyed. 1 Corinthians 15.26, again our same passage, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then in Revelation 21 verse 4, just to beautifully consistently back that up and uh, I guess close off our our revealed scriptures, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Before Adam disobeyed God, there was no death. Adam disobeyed. We live in this short, short, short period of history where we live with this awful thing called death. But God is going to restore things back to the way that they were, the way we were originally created. He's going to work through this, solve this problem of death through the resurrection, and then death will be no more. That will be the last enemy to be destroyed, is death. So for now we live with it, but it's not natural, it's not normal. And we're just working through this process of, well, God is working through this process of of dealing with it, with getting it out of the way forever. So, oh, any more? Have you thought of any more implications? <laughs> if you do, text me, email me, and uh, I'll do a bit more study and add it to to my message. Hopefully, I'll get it to preach next time, uh, either to an unsaved person or to to a congregation like this. So, next one, Hamish. So, in conclusion, the resurrection of Christ is of first importance. It was predicted, it really happened, and it's got absolutely huge implications. So, just want to encourage you, if things get crazy, uh, if your faith is being shaken, when you don't know which way is up anymore, just remember that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, we worship you again. We worship you for this fact of the resurrection. And Lord, I give thanks to you that until midway through last year, I didn't even understand the implications of your resurrection. But Lord, I pray that you'd help us to meditate on these things and help us to never forget, even when we're shaken by different things and life's not going to our plans, help us to remember what you've already done and the huge implications. And I pray, Lord, as we come across people like Carl who have a, a misunderstanding about who you are, Lord, that we would be able to clearly bring people like Carl 
back to the, the infallible proofs, the many proofs of the resurrection and what that means about this man who claimed to be God. So we praise you, we thank you that our faith is not based on something airy-fairy, it's not based on a ghost or a spirit that somebody might have seen or a vision that they have received personally, but it's it's based on historical facts and it's based on a huge amount of power. So we pray these things in your name and for your glory alone.